Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. As you're well aware, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. We've worked, uh, we finished chapter 6 last week, and so we begin chapter 7 uh, this Sunday. I'm going to cover verses 1 through 24 today, and so if you'd be so kind, follow along as I read John 7, beginning of verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacle was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5 tells us, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he'd said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. They're not talking about the disciples, they're talking about the Jewish leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who speaks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Yet demon possessed the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though it actually did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead, judge correctly. So Lord, we thank you for your word and for the truth that's in your word. I pray, Lord, that you'd use me today, even me. Let your words be life to your people in such a way that you make them be more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. So let's take a look at, uh, at chapter 7. Verse 1 tells us that after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Let me just 
make it clear, it wasn't a lack of courage on Jesus' part that made him stay in Galilee. The text, I think, makes it pretty clear. It was rather his awareness, uh, the significance of the Father's timing, the Father's perfect timing. He, sent, he says, my time has not fully come yet. Then we move on to verse 2, and it mentions the Feast of Tabernacles. I thought I'd take just a minute or two to explain some of that to you. The Feast of Tabernacles, also known as Sukkoth, or the Feast of the Booths, was the seventh and final feast given to Israel. It was a joyous, week-long celebration. It was a time when families came, uh, camped out, as it were, in these booths or huts or tents or these, or these mini tabernacles. Uh, to commemorate God's faithfulness to Israel uh, during their 40 years of wandering uh, in the wilderness. During uh, the festival, many Jewish families would construct these small, rather hastily built uh, huts where they would share their meals uh, throughout the week. I can remember growing up in Brooklyn, which has, which has a, a large uh, Jewish um, representation in the population, um, you could go through neighborhoods uh, during, during this week and see all these little tents set up, sometimes in the backyard, sometimes on the front porch. I can't even remember seeing on fire escapes on the side of buildings in New York City, these little booths uh, set up. This is where they would you know, celebrate this, this Hebrew festival. Um, later, after Israel had entered the land of promise, uh, it became associated, Sukkoth or or well, the Feast of Tabernacles became associated with the fall harvest and, and actually had become known as the harvest of the ingathering, or the, uh, the festival um, of the ingathering, the festival of the harvest. And additionally, it was a way of marking the end of their agricultural year, as well as they had an annual cycle for reading the Torah, and this would mark the end of that as well. So that's a little bit of backstory on the Feast of Tabernacles for those who wanted to know. Verse, uh, verses 3 and 4 tells us that Jesus' brothers were giving him a hard time. Ever had gotten a hard time from your brother? They, brothers and sisters, they can give each other a hard time, you know? You know it doesn't really matter how big and bad and famous um, your, one of your siblings might be when the family's just together, you know, you just you get treated about as real as anybody else. Well, apparently, Jesus' earthly uh, biological brothers are not too impressed with him as an itinerant minister. They say to him, and you've got to be able to hear the sarcastic tone in this, leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these uh, things, show yourself to the world. Eventually, uh, essentially, Jesus' brothers are telling him, take your show on the road, big shot. If you really do have all this miraculous power, why don't you go to Jerusalem and make yourself famous, you know? The Living Bible, I think, in its uh, take on the text, uh, communicates it accurately. It says, you can't be famous when you hide like this. If you're so great, prove it to the world, right? So his earthly brothers are apparently not impressed with uh, the things Jesus has done so far. Now, prior to the resurrection, <clears throat> uh, prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, his brothers never seemed to be all that supportive of his work in ministry. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, gives us some additional insight. It says there, Then Jesus entered the house, and again the crowd gathered, so that his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. Hardly supportive. And, right? This is 
You know, they're not like, you know, right there having his back. He's out of his mind. But it does seem like they had a heart change after the resurrection. Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has ascended to heaven in verses 12 to 14, it shows, it shows us that things have changed a bit. Verse 12 says that, Then the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So somewhere along the line, they had a bad attitude to, the, to the, their oldest son. I tell you what, us oldest kids, we get a hard time from our other siblings. Right? Oldest child always has trouble with the youngest child. You know? A married one, I know. So anyway, it seems like eventually, eventually Jesus' brothers came around. Every time I complain about oldest versus youngest child, Nadine does this. I said, what's that? She has the smallest violin in the world playing a sad, sad song. <laughs> but isn't it interesting? I mean, here we have the Messiah. He couldn't operate in any greater clarity. He couldn't operate in any greater power, pure power of the Holy Spirit than he does. And still, those who are close to him are able to miss it. It, it ought to humble us that, that sometimes even at, when we're at our best, when we're doing all the things that God would have us do, when we're doing right things right, not when we're doing right things wrong, not when we're doing wrong things wrong, when we're doing right things right, it's still possible that those closest to us will give us a hard time because they don't get it for whatever reason. Obviously, Jesus' brothers, their eyes are blind for some reason. Right? There ought to be some comfort. If this is how they could treat Jesus, now, I'm not immune to it either. Verses 6 to 9. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. His time had not fully come. We'll see in the next verse that it fully came just a short time later. But at, the, at this point in the conversation, the timing wasn't right. I love how Jesus refuses to be squeezed into anybody's mold. He just won't do it. He, he, it, he wouldn't be squeezed into Pharisees' mold. He wouldn't be squeezed into the mold of the crowd that we studied extensively in John chapter 6, remember, he fed the multitudes, and they wanted to make him king, right? Wow, he can multiply food. He can heal the sick. This guy would be a great military leader to overcome Roman oppression, right? And what was Jesus' response to them wanting to make him king? He went off to a lonely place to pray. He, he wouldn't be squeezed into their mold. He had, he's had confrontation after confrontation with the Pharisees, and there'll be more. And he still refused to be squeezed into their mold. Here we see... He won't even be squeezed into the mold of his biological brothers. He just will not let somebody else squeeze him into his mold. He's, I love about Jesus that he's not a people pleaser. His heart is to please his heavenly father. He'll do the father's will. He's committed with, with a laser focus to the father's will. 
He was completely submitted to the will of the Father. The timing of God the Father was of greater importance to him than appeasing his brothers. You know, I've been a pastor a long time. I have never found people-pleasing to be an effective ministry model. It's just never served me well. I, I discovered early on that if I choose to make group A happy, group B is going to be upset with me. If I make group B happy, group A is going to be upset with me. And so I've just kind of like said, I'm not going to make either group happy. That's not, I'm not even going to let that be my objective. I try to make it simple. Instead of making Christianity hard, it's like, Father, what do you want me to do? <laughs> Tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do that. Matter of fact, the reason why I'm teaching this series on the Gospel of John is I came before God. It's like, Lord, what do you want me to speak? He said, speak on John's Gospel. Said, okay, I'll do that. So, sometimes I make God happy and then group A and B are both upset with me. And I don't really like that, but, but at least I could sleep at night. You know, I was like, God, at least I'm doing the best I can to do what you want me to do. Now, one of the things that we, we can pick up here is that timing... Is important. There's a significance to timing. It's important to know the will of God. It's, I think I could say confidently, it's equally as important to know the timing of God. It's as important to know his timing as it is to know his will. Many, many Christians I've known, especially those who've, who've been open to the gifts of the Spirit, who've tried to embrace prophetic or revelatory gifting, if there's a place where people continually trip up, is they miss the timing. They're either too far behind, or in their excitement and their enthusiasm, they're too far ahead of schedule. Um, it's a sure recipe for frustration. And I've, I've seen it missing this sense of timing. Either maybe because there's pressure from other people or just desires of your own, I've seen people miss the timing and it actually do damage uh, on their faith journey, on their spiritual walk. Um, I've shared before, this might be a good place to share it again. When it comes to revelation, when it comes to prophetic ministry, there's really, there's really three facets to it. There's the revelation, there's the interpretation, and there's the application. The revelation is what God speaks to me. I had a dream, I had a vision, I heard that still small voice in my heart. Somehow God communicated to me. That's the revelation. Something is revealed. The communications got through. But I've got to tell you, more often than not, in my experience, is that God speaks symbolically. He speaks in metaphor, and he speaks, Jesus spoke often in parables. So sometimes when he speaks to us, oftentimes, the revelation we get, it needs to be interpreted. Right? Often this doesn't mean that. Often it's not literal. So this morning, uh, after worship, I, I shared a few prophetic words, and what happens with me often is I saw pictures on people, and some people I saw rainbow-colored uh, drops of water coming down on their head. Another person, I, you know, I saw gold shining on them. So I could just tell them, oh, I see this, but it has very little value. I need to be able to interpret what I see, right? And so I've seen people who get really accurate revelation. They know the will of God, right? They, they've received the, the revelation with clarity, but they've misinterpreted it, right? You can get one part right and the other part wrong. Or I've seen people who get the revelation part right, and then they interpret it accurately, but the mistake is made uh, on the application. So the will of God is really the revelation and interpretation part. I've gotten 
some revelation from God. He's spoken to me in his word. A friend of mine called me up and said, I was praying for you today, and I sensed this. Somehow the revelation comes through, and then you interpret it accurately. You still have to make the right application. I've made this mistake. I've heard God right. I've interpreted it right. But I've missed the timing of it. And I'll just be completely honest with you. My sense of hearing is really good. My sense of timing is not so good. I'm usually way ahead of schedule. Sometimes as much as two years ahead of time, God tells me what he wants to do. And I've made the mistake of thinking, oh, this is right now. It's not right now. It's somewhere uh, down the line. So timing is part of the application process of learning how to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. How do we follow God? Because of his relationship with the Father, Jesus knew perfectly the will of the Father and the timing of the Father. It's, it's part of a maturing process for us. Does that make sense to you? Does that help a little bit? I mean, for some people, when, they're not, when, when things like prophetic ministry are uncommon, it's new to them, it seems wubba-wubba. It seems mysterious, you know? I like to sometimes break it down as simply as I can and say, hey, if you look at this in three parts, it might make more sense to you. It might also make more sense to you why it really felt like God this time, because it felt like God all the other times when he spoke to me like this, but it didn't work out. How come it felt right and it didn't work out right? Well, maybe the revelation was right and it could be the interpretation or the application was off somehow. And so there's a maturing process and sometimes there's a need for, for training and education. Anyway, hopefully that will be helpful to you. Revelation, interpretation, application. Jesus knew the will of the Father, but he also knew the timing of the Father. He would do it according to the Father's timing. He wouldn't be pressed into going beforehand because of his, the goading of his brothers. He wouldn't do it because somebody else wanted him to. He did it when the Father told him to do it. He went and, It's good to go when God says go. It's good to stop when God says stop. It's not so good to go when he doesn't want you to go. Or to stop when he wants you to go. I remember having a profound experience with God. Had this experience with Jesus. And it's one of the few times he spoke to me and it just made me kind of shudder inside. Because there was so much weight, there was so much authority. He looked at me and he says, you speak when the Father says speak. And you go when the Father says go. I was in a situation, there was citywide politics among some multi-church thing, and I was like, ugh, I don't want it. I just hate it. Ugh, I hate it. I'll just, I'll just back away. I'll just, I'll just stop. And I really, felt, I really felt the loving rebuke of God. You speak when I give you something to say. You go when I tell you to go. I'd have rather just stayed in bed that day. Right? It's good to go when he says go. It's good to stop when he says stop. Another example. I can remember another season in life where the, you know, there are times, you probably have had this too, it just feels like God is very near, or my, my sensitivity to his presence is heightened. And then there are those, those other times, right? The heavens are like brass. It's just like, I don't know, I pray, my prayers bounce all the ceiling, land, land on my head. It feels like, feels like God's away. He hasn't moved, right? He's not the one who's ever moved. But that's what it feels like to me. But this was one of those better seasons. This is one of those seasons where his presence was near and my sensitivity to his presence was rich. And so I remember coming to a, um, an intersection not far from my house. And 
And as I got there, the light had turned yellow. It was kind of one of those deals, I could stop or I could go. I could stop or I could go. I was born in New York, what do you think I did? I blew through that yellow, and it kind of, one of those deals that was turning red about halfway through. I didn't get a ticket, there was no cop car behind me, the lights flashing. But it just, <clears throat> because I was in this, this season of just heightened sensitivity to the spirit, and I don't live in that place, but this was one of those times. Um, I felt like I was supposed to stop, but I went instead. And for the rest of that day, God was just teaching me, he was educating me. For the rest of that day, I felt like I was out of sync. I felt like I was out of timing. That it had been better if I had stopped when he, when he gave me that subtle inkling to stop instead of going because it was my nature to just go. Um, so that's, you know, sometimes you can learn a lesson for a dollar now that could cost you a million later, right? That was one of my dollar lessons. It cost me nothing that day except that I learned to have a sensitivity to go when God says go and stop. When God says stop, timing is significant. Okay, I could stay on that forever. Let me move on to the rest of today's message from John 7, verses 10 to 13. Maybe timing's important for somebody here today. Sometimes that happens to me. I just feel the pull um, because maybe somebody has a need. Verse 10, however, after his brothers had left the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival of the Jewish leaders, um, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowd, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So he, Jesus does go to Jerusalem, not when his brothers wanted to, but a short time afterwards. And what do we discover? Jerusalem is just buzzing about Jesus. There's rumor about him everywhere. Right? Unfortunately, gossip, rumor, and politics have been around church circles for a very long time. Some people said he was good. Some people said, no, he wasn't good. People loved him. <laughs> people loved Jesus. Other people hated Jesus. It's just astonishing. There seemed to be very little middle ground. Very few people were neutral about him. They were passionately for him or passionately against him. Um, Personally, I find this oddly comforting as I look back on Nadine and my spiritual journey. We've been lots of different places, and i got to tell you, everywhere we've gone, there are people who are just fiercely supportive of who we are and the things that God calls us to do. And then there are people who are also fierce, but not so much supportive. And, so, <laughs> and we've just scratched our heads. It's like, I'm a nice guy, and my wife really cooks well. <laughs> Doesn't seem to be too many neutral uh, opinions. Verses 14 to 18. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I am speaking on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who speaks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So Jesus does go to the temple courts later on in the week. He goes to the temple courts and begins to teach. Obviously, he's not a coward in hiding. He just simply avoided the grand entrance that his brothers were, were poking him to, to go after. But he never shrank back. He never hid. 
from his purpose and his calling. He continued to minister life and truth, and he did it in a public way. So we'll see here in John chapter 7 that beginning here, he begins, um, he begins to respond to three objections. One objection is against his education and slash authority. The second objection is that he's a rule breaker, that he violates religious laws. And the, the third objection has to do with the opinion that he couldn't possibly be uh, the Messiah. I'll look at those first two objections today. We'll, we'll cover the third one uh, next Sunday. So the first objection. So it appears that Jesus, believe it or not, doesn't have a PhD in theology from the University of Jerusalem. Right? How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Right? He probably couldn't be hired by most churches in North America because he doesn't have that paper, right? The objection seems to be that Jesus isn't properly educated. He hasn't been professionally trained. He's not somehow bona fide as they like him to be. Now, the Jewish leaders, they knew this, that, the, that Jesus hadn't studied or hadn't been discipled under some prominent rabbi, say, like Gamaliel, Paul's, um, Paul's teacher. Paul, Paul refers to having trained them under this famous rabbi in Acts 22. Verse 3, Paul says, I'm a Jew, born in Titus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. Paul's sharing his bona fides. He's sharing his qualifications. These are my credentials. Jesus possesses no such earthly academic pedigree. The Jewish leaders knew it and wanted to use it to their political advantage. It raises the question, why didn't Jesus have this? Why didn't he have that document? Why didn't he have that credentials? Why hadn't he trained under? Why didn't he have the piece of paper? That seems to be so amazingly important and significant in our church culture today. Why is that? If Jesus is our example in all things, I think it raises a pretty good question. It makes us scratch our heads. I think one of the reasons why the church is in such sad state today is that we've been educated in our mind to a high degree, but not in our hearts. We know faith intellectually, academically. We don't know how to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. We've been to the schools of men. We've not been to the school of God. Something's very wrong with that. What if we turned it around? What if we actually follow Jesus' example? I'm just saying. So in response, Jesus doesn't point to his credentials. Instead, he points to his teaching, to his instructions. It's as if he's saying, hey, I don't have a seminary degree, but judge me by the things I teach. If those Jewish leaders had really listened, if they listened carefully to Jesus' teachings, they would have realized that they were all rooted in Old Testament scripture and that it indeed was from God just as Jesus said it was Jesus was obviously an insightful and gifted teacher consider the Beatitudes profound profound what he said but it would be it wouldn't be accurate to say in some derogatory fashion that Jesus was somehow self-taught as if that's an insult Jesus was and is perfectly unified, one with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus, after all, is the Word made flesh. 
dwelling among us. He had no need to study the word or be taught the word by men. He is the word. Jesus was sent by the Father and spoke not only with the Father's authority, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit. His authority was not from any man. It wasn't from some prestigious university or from some renowned professor that he'd studied under. His authority was from his oneness with his Heavenly Father. That's significant. Remember, I've been telling you repeatedly, we have been, we have been invited into the unity that's shared between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. It's the whole purpose of creation. It's the purpose of the incarnation. It's the purpose of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the reason why he's coming back, that we could share in that relationship. If we, were, if we would acquire, if we would fully embrace and engage in what's been offered to us, there'd be no question of the authority that we operate in. It doesn't mean everybody else would, would like it. They didn't like it when Jesus did it. Think about it for a second. Would there be more power in your life if you walked in oneness with the Father, Son, and Spirit? Would there be more authority? In, would there be more peace in your life? I'm thinking there would be. There would be in mine. That's, that's the desire of my heart. It truly is all about relationship. Jesus had it, and it was the basis of his authority. Not some, not some credentials from... Some earthly university. So let's finish up this section of John 7, verses 19 to 24. Has not Moses given you the law, Jesus says? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Their response is, you're demon possessed. The crowd answered, who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So this is the second objection that Jesus addresses. And the objection is this, is that Jesus breaks the rules, that he's a Sabbath breaker. I still love Jesus broke rules. You know, I love that he would mess with the rules and regulations of men. I'm not a big fan of the status quo. I love this about him. It makes it easier for me to follow him. In verse 19, Jesus says, why are you trying to kill me? This goes back to John chapter 5, where Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. We covered that weeks ago. The Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. John 5, 16 to 18 just states this plainly. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he even was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus heals a sick man, a man who's been lame for a long time. But he did it, he didn't do it on the appropriate day. He did it on the Sabbath day, where the rules were that he is not supposed to work. And so they equated healing with working on the Sabbath. And as a result, not only did they want to persecute him, Scripture tells us they wanted to kill him. And multitudes obviously were not aware of this. Jew Jewish leaders were aware of it, though they, they kept it secret. They had their own agenda, their, their hidden agenda. Hidden agenda is never a good sign. 
So here Jesus uses the example of circumcision to undo this second objection. If it were permitted, even commanded, to do a negative work, such as cutting away the flesh of circumcision on the Sabbath, why not a work that brings wholeness? That's basically Jesus' argument. And then Jesus tells them to st basically to stop judging a book by its cover. Stop looking at the outside. Look deeper. If the Jewish leaders had done this, if they had taken the time to actually not judge by outer appearances, maybe, just maybe, they would have embraced Jesus instead of contesting and rejecting him. So, this is a... Our first look at John chapter 7. What's our Monday morning takeaway? What, what can we take from this portion of John chapter 7 that might be of some value to us uh, tomorrow morning? Well, I see a few things here. Basically two. Um, one is people-pleasing, and the other is a religious spirit. So I say let's, let's follow Jesus' example in John chapter 7. First, let's, let's choose not to be people-pleasers. Not, let's not choose to please group A or B. But let's have a sense of, God, what do you want me to do? And do whatever we can with as much love and as much humility as possible to please God. Let our decision be to please God and, and not man, even if it's family members. Let's be diligent in seeking not only the will of God, but a sensitivity to the timing of God as well. It's good to know his will. It's equally as important to understand his timing. So that's, I think that's first takeaway. Let's not be people pleasers. Let's do our best to, to please God. And the second is this. I think we see in operation here um, different characteristics of a religious spirit. And it might be helpful for us to just be cognizant of it. So the second Monday morning takeaway, takeaway is let's resist a religious spirit. One way to define what Jesus is confronting here, I think, would be to title it as a religious spirit. And I see a few characteristics of them in this John 7 account. First thing we see is that a religious spirit is a fault finder. They look for what's wrong. They never look for what's right. They just, they, they walk into a room and instead of seeing the five people they can encourage, they can see the five people that got something wrong with them today. And, and that's what they fixate on. Instead of walking into a room and seeing what's right with the room, they walk into a room and see what's wrong with the room. They're fault finders. Second thing about religious spirit, they look to the earthly and to the natural and to the physical, as in, as in Jesus' academic credentials and qualification. Um, they easily reject things that are heavenly or supernatural or spiritual qualifications. Even more so, um, they, they view that side of things, the spiritual side of things, as somehow being bogus or or um, suspect, that's the word I'm looking for. A religious spirit defaults to the rules and regulations instead of love. Right? So they, they'll argue with Jesus over the fact that he healed the sick on the Sabbath, but they have no eyes to see the fact that this was a man who'd been lame for so long, and his body is whole again. Can, can you see the fault finding in that? Instead of seeing what was gloriously wonderful that happened, they see, oh, he didn't do it on the right day. They default to the rules and regulations. They violate love even as they yell scripture in your face. 
A religious spirit chooses its opinion over love. I mean, that's a, that's a huge red flag. You find somebody who's willing to violate love for their opinion? Come on, man, that's a bad deal. That's a miserable trade-off. Usually an indication of a religious spirit. They'll readily sacrifice friendship to support their theological position. Another huge red flag for me. Truly, isn't that straining out gnats and swallowing camels? A person with a religious spirit is easily and continually offended. Oh my goodness. Easily bruised. And finally, my discovery has been this. Even when they're face to face with Jesus, even when he's the one that's instructing them, a person with a religious spirit is unteachable. Pride keeps them from seeing that the one they're talking to is the Messiah. Pride in their opinions, pride in their religious heritage, the way we've always done things. So, Monday morning takeaway from John 7. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, <laughs> live in the opposite spirit this week. Live in the opposite spirit. Right? Choose to be teachable. Choose to be unoffendable. Choose this week to please God above pleasing man. Choose love over your opinion. Choose friendship over your theological positions. Don't, don't ever lose a friend over theology, please. And I say, I say that for this reason. I've been doing this a long time. My theology's changed over almost 40 years. How about yours? Has your theology changed at all in 40 years? If your theology hasn't changed at all in 40 years, that would concern me. It would. I look at the changes I've made over 40 years, and I'm thinking this is maturity. I think somehow there's been, there's been growth. I've if, I have, if I haven't learned something new since last year, isn't that a problem? So if my, if my theology can be adjusted over the 40-year span that I've been doing this, you know what that means? That somewhere back there I was wrong. <laughs> I know it's hard for you guys to believe it. But somewhere I was wrong. Right? You know what it feels like to be wrong? It feels like being right. <laughs> right? Because if you knew you were wrong, you'd change what you were thinking. So, man, there were, I know that there were some CDs and tapes and recordings out there and messages I gave a decade or two or three ago. I just pray Jesus let them wind up in somebody's trash because I don't believe that stuff anymore. My relationship with God has become more intimate. I'm much more aware of the extravagance of his love, of the richness of his mercy, of just how amazing his grace is. So I see things differently to, today than I did then. You would hope that that would be the fact after doing anything for 40 years, right? You'd, you'd know a little bit better. For that reason, don't sacrifice relationship over theology. Because your theology will change. And so I'm 54 now. You know what I'm learning at 54? It's hard to have old friends. Because I'm not going to be around much longer to be able to have those really old friends. Hold on to the friendship. Let the theology go. Love them. Choose to love. It's more important to love than it is to be right. Because if choosing to be right comes at the expense of love, the price is just too high. It's not worth it. 
So that's the Monday morning takeaway. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for your presence. Jesus, I thank you for your example. I thank you for how, I thank you for how real your word is. It's not sugar-coated. I thank you for the authenticity of your character and your nature as it's described in the Holy Scripture. Lord, I pray. I pray that we would be so much more like you. Lord, I pray that as a church, you would put to death in us people-pleasing. Just put it to death in us. And let the objective of our heart, of our lives, be this, that we live to please you and please you alone. And Lord, now I'm pretty sure that I've got some religious stuff in me and there's a good bet so is everybody else here. Lord, would you purge that from us? Would you cleanse us? Would you purify us? I don't want to be in bondage to what I did last year or last decade or 40 years ago. Set me free, O oh God. Lord, I pray that you, by your spirit, would lead us into all truth, that we would know the truth and that your truth would set us free. And Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen? You guys have an awesome day. I'll see you throughout the week.